0: Welcome back to the women's podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and I'm sure like me, many of you got up a bit early this morning to watch the boxing in the Olympics and the incredible Kelly Harrington, who secured at least a silver medal in the boxing semi final. She's through to the final of her weight on Sunday, and we're all cheering for her. What an incredible achievement, and what a cool, funny, and dedicated young woman she is from Dublin's inner city, not too far away from me in the North Strand. And she's taking so much pride and delight in being able to lift all of our spirits. What a woman going for gold on Sunday! Well, today, as the controversy over Catherine Sapone's declining of the UN Special Envoy position and her gathering that she held for 50 people in the Marion Hotel rages on, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 restrictions in a different way. The ones that have meant women during this pandemic have been experiencing all sorts of things, including pregnancy loss, having babies and generally going through everything to do with maternity on their own. And I want to read you a post that was posted on the COVID In Her Shoes Facebook page, which really puts it into stark reality for us. So this woman said, On our first pregnancy in May 2020, I was told that I had a miscarriage alone. In June, I was given confirmation that the baby was no more and that the medication I had to take had worked alone. In August, I found out there was a heartbeat with our second pregnancy, alone. I went to each and every scan, alone. I was diagnosed with preeclampsia, alone. They induced me, alone. My waters broke, alone. I laboured, alone. Scared, shitless and in tears, I was one of many on that pre-labor ward, alone. In April 2021, our beautiful baby girl was born via emergency C-section and I was, inverted commas, lucky enough to have my husband by my side, Then I was told that my preeclampsia had worsened postpartum and I was at risk of stroke and organ failure alone. I was expected to look after my baby, solo, and also myself for that week in hospital bar, the two hours my husband was allowed to visit alone. I was told I had developed cellulitis over my wound alone. Unfortunately, our baby was admitted to Crumlin Children's Hospital at eight days old with suspected meningitis and I had to sit in triage with her alone. Only one of us could be with her each day. Over 10 days she was in hospital. Once again, I found myself alone. It took a village of supportive friends and family to get our little girl to where we are today. Yet 13 weeks postpartum, when it comes to the Irish health system, I still feel very much alone. And that's just one of many devastating stories. So today... We're going to be talking about the fact that you can go to the pub and to restaurants inside with your COVID search. Loads of people there. You can have a gathering of up to 200 people outdoors. But if you're a pregnant woman in Ireland today, you are pretty much, as that woman said, on your own. Waterford Whispers News does great satire. And they had a story this week that said pregnant women to deliver child indoors in pub so partner can attend birth. Well, it's also National Breastfeeding Week, so we thought we'd also talk about that on the podcast. And I spoke to Evie Nihulavon, broadcaster, academic, mathematician and musician and assistant professor in UCD. She gave birth to her second son in the pandemic and she's also a campaigner for breastfeeding. She's in the Baby Feeding Law Group Ireland and also the mother representative on the National Maternity Hospital Steering Committee. Emma Carroll also joined me on the podcast. She's an environmental scientist and farmer living in County Kildare. She has one daughter, Liv, who was born at the start of restrictions on maternity care in April 2020. Emma runs the page In Our Shoes COVID Pregnancy on Instagram and Facebook to give voice to those affected by restrictions on maternity care. They both talk to me about issues that are so important for women at the moment. And I began by asking Evine to tell me her experience of giving birth during COVID.
1: Well, I was very lucky, Roisin, in that it was my uh, second pregnancy in the pandemic and I really feel sorry for anyone who's having their first baby during the pandemic because it was a very, very different experience, Um, you know, going to every single appointment um, in the hosp- hospital on your own. I had one morning where I was a little bit worried about the baby. I hadn't felt him kicking for a couple of hours. And, you know, that's just a horrible, horrible feeling. And to just say, OK, uh, Carlos, my husband, I will call you later. You know, the fact that he just couldn't come in with me because that was a bit terrifying and, you know, if I was to get bad news on my own for that. um, So a very different experience. But look, we both said at the time, look, it's a pandemic um you know we'll, we'll take it in our stride and we did because it was second time round but it's only now actually looking back in hindsight i missed seeing the scans together and having a cup of coffee afterwards and looking at the photos and all that kind of stuff so uh while it was totally fine and thankfully everything went well and thankfully my labor was grand because you know it was the second time round and i was very lucky i think in total from um, contraction starting, I think it was three hours until he was born. And so he drove me to the hospital and literally within maybe an hour, they were just like, "You can come in now. And he was able to stay for the whole time. And, and, and the baby just kind of popped out a little bit. But, you know, had it been my first time, I would have been a very different mother um, in terms of being just a little bit worried because you do need someone there to hold the Hold the bowl that you're puking into, and to you know, give you a towel when you've popped out of the shower, and to you know, hold your hand when you're in the middle of a contraction trying to walk to the to the toilet and stuff like that. So, yeah, just a very different experience um, giving birth in the pandemic.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna go into more detail into it later. And in my intro I read out one story from Emma's um Facebook page which which sort of this woman went through absolutely every possible thing you could and you know it's relative for each person, but I think it's it's important to to say that it, it was a different experience and it's you know, just because your experience isn't necessarily as bad as someone else's, it still takes away from 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 that very special time in a woman's life. Um, and we will talk more in detail about that later. But I wanted to talk to you first of all about um, breastfeeding. So it's National Breastfeeding Week. It's celebrated every year, August 1st to August 7th. Mm-hmm. And you became a bit of an accidental <laughs> from Rosa Tralee <laughs> to all the other things you've done, Evie, <laughs> And now you're a breastfeeding spokesmodel. That's terrible. Spokesperson.
1: <laughs> yes. And it is accidental routine. And I I am laughing about it because, you know, I really didn't think I'd be the person advocating for breastfeeding. But uh, I've realised so much uh, since the birth of my second boy. And I only came to it accidentally because back in January, uh, we had a lactation consultant, a public lactation consultant in the area where I live in Dublin. And there's only four in the whole entire country. And when I had her and my boy was born with a tongue tie and with the tooth and I really needed someone to talk to. And I'm that kind of a stubborn person or silly person that, you know, if I can't do it by myself, it must be a sign that I can't do it. But the fact that the lactation consultant was just there and I was able to ask her questions and she was able to help me through it. And then, you know, on those awful mornings when you haven't had any sleep and there's a breastfeeding group and you're just like, oh, will I log on? Well I will because you know it's there now. And it was just so helpful to see the other mums in the exact same position. And when in January she was um reassigned as a public health nurse and I was just distraught because this lactation consultant had absolutely saved me in the first, you know, 10 weeks of the baby and I just thought all the poor mums who are having their first baby and wouldn't have this support. And so I just got on Twitter about it um, and it just turned into something. And, and I found out so much since about research into breastfeeding, how underfunded maternity services and breastfeeding services are in Ireland. And it's just kind of brought me to, to advocating because I just feel that women and children have been you know, kind of set aside for a whole century in this country and it's about time that institutions and industries didn't actually get the first word on it. And so I really feel that maternity services and, you know, breastfeeding supports as just one part of that just need a little bit of focus from the powers that be. They need funding and they need a little bit of uh, policy support and They just need a little bit of attention because if we if we give them that, you know, mums, women in general are very strong, very resourceful, but actually we can't do everything without a little bit of support. So I just feel that this is a problem that can be easily solved. And that's why I've kind of started advocating for for these things. Mm.
0: Well, I totally agree with you. I was someone who had twins and I mean, I didn't do brilliant and I did I lasted probably 10 months, but and it wasn't all the time, you know, oh, I had wow. to I did a bit of formula as well, but I I found the experience of breastfeeding so empowering and I and I was lucky in that it worked and they they seemed mm, to really want it, well so rewarding. I didn't have to do too much struggling, but I did end up paying, I think, um for a couple of sessions with a lactation consultant because um I wanted to make sure it was right and yeah. that I could get as much support and mm-hmm. it was it really was so helpful even just to confirm that what I was doing oh, was absolutely. okay. You you no. Know, yeah. so it, I really, I, everything you're saying makes so much sense, but I I don't think it's made a priority, you know. No,
1: and just on that, Roisin, like, you know, Banya Baja did um, a survey last year and they found out that on average, women are paying €450 euro for extra supports, you know, so immediately. So I'm in a postcode lottery because we had a, a free public lactation consultant. And then second of all, well, if you can't afford that, you're kind of bunched. But then it's it's out of the frying pan into the fire, because then if you are forced to use formula where you might not have wanted to, if you wanted to absolutely, that's your choice. But if you didn't want to and now all of a sudden you have to because it's not working, you know, that's another expense on your family. And so it becomes unnecessarily expensive when if the government actually funded it at the beginning stages, so much more afterwards. Um, would be just, it It would just be a great investment because, you know, the, the health benefits for both baby and mum down the line are, I would say, almost immeasurable. Um, and, and so this is the thing, it shouldn't be a postcode lottery and it shouldn't be dependent on if you can pay for the support or not.
0: And just to give a bit of context for people as well, because some people will say, oh, you know, it's it's putting too much pressure on women and not everyone can breastfeed, which is absolutely mm-hmm, true mm-hmm. and it's not for everyone. So mm-hmm. we should say that at the outset, absolutely. but just to give a bit of context with statistics, Fewer than 6% of babies in Ireland are exclusively breastfed at six months. And the European average is 25%. Mm-hmm. So that's quite stark. Um, and nationally, 63.8% of women initiate breastfeeding at their baby's first feed compared to rates of 90% in Australia, 81% in the UK and 79% in the US. And we, So we are, for some reason, and we can maybe talk about that a bit, mm. Uh, pretty bad on this the world health organization says that breastfeeding is one of the most effective ways to ensure child health and survival and the theme for this breastfeeding week is protect breastfeeding a shared responsibility Mm -hmm. so why do you think it has become um where we're really trailing behind so many people
1: it's a complex question roisin and i just want to add one more statistic to that um 80 percent of irish mums would like to breastfeed, have said that they would like to breastfeed. So already, what you said there, 63% have the first feed. So already there, there's a drop of that 20%. What happened to those ones who wanted to breastfeed and didn't end up? Now, there's lots of reasons, but... If it's a matter that they don't feel supported by their healthcare providers, that's the first thing. So we need to make sure that our maternity services are properly staffed. Because when your baby is screaming that first night when you've never had a baby screaming before and they're fully your responsibility and something isn't working and they're not feeding and at two o'clock in the morning, you would just need somebody to come in and just go, do you know what? If you hold them this way, if you try this, will I express the colostrum for you? Here's a little bit of... um heat to maybe help the milk come. There's so much with that. So first of all, we haven't fully and properly staffed our maternity wards. So that's the first thing. All of the staff that are on the maternity wards need to be up to speed in breastfeeding and not all of them are at the moment. So that's the second thing. GPs also, I think, should require compulsory training in breastfeeding because they're almost your your, your first port of call when you're pregnant. And you kind of need to be setting yourself up mentally for this as well. But I think one of the most important things, um, Roisin, is that the culture of breastfeeding has kind of been lost because in the 70s and 80s, women were bombarded by the formula companies with marketing and messaging that actually formula was better for your baby than breastfeeding because, do you know what? Your baby's really hungry and your breast milk isn't actually going to fill them up. And this is absolute nonsense. Like we've done all the research now and we know that that is not the case cluster feeding is normal. It doesn't mean that they're hungry. It just means that they need more of your milk to come in and that's what they're setting themselves up for. And their tummies are growing the whole time. It doesn't mean that they're hungry. And the 70s and 80s had a a massive influx of all these formula products um, and they were in the hospitals and, you know, in the hospitals, you know, uh, you know, nurses didn't always know best. And they were just like, okay, well, why don't you give them a bottle and then they'll be grand and I can send you home then because their blood sugars will be up and all this kind of stuff.
0: Eveen, can I interrupt you there for a second? Because yeah. I just want to paint that picture. I mean, I think it's 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 so I don't want to use the word evil, but I like that's kind of what it feels like to me. If you think about these uh, companies now, who was making the money? Who was in charge mm-hmm. of these companies? Were there women CEOs of these formula milk companies? No,
1: certainly not. No, yeah. I mean. So there's is- all
0: these men making a load of money yeah. off all these women yeah. by lying, essentially, by telling yeah. them that what they had in their body wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. and And the hospitals colluding, the state mm-hmm. colluding with mm-hmm. this as well. It makes me so angry. And I can't understand completely why you have kind of fallen into being an accidental spokesperson, because I mean, you know, you're in that situation now. But anyway, that's just a little side rant. But just to be to paint that picture, there's people making a ton of money off yeah. women telling them not to do what comes very naturally to mm-hmm. them. That's what mm-hmm, really makes mm-hmm. me mad.
1: And and I'll, let's go back to what I was saying about culture in a second, because you, you make a really, really important point there, Roisin, because and this is where I just get so cross Um, Because what they've done is this capitalist um, regime, let's say, because these are, they're, they're an industry. The formula companies, they're an industry and all they want is profits. They don't care about your health, your baby's health. They just want to make money. But they're feeding on your guilt, so they're making you think, oh, my God, my baby isn't getting enough food. I have to feed them this formula. So it's the epitome of the patriarchy making the woman feel inadequate. But what they've done now, which I is making my mind blow, because what they've done now, and I've seen it recently on social media, they're saying that. And I'm putting in inverted commas, if you could see me, the pressure to breastfeed is anti-feminist. So This capitalist regime, this patriarchy that are making you feel guilty for having a hungry baby because you've breastfed and you should formally feed is now saying, and all those women who are making you feel bad that you're not breastfeeding, you know, you tell them where to go because you should just formula feed. And I just I cannot get over it because the only we we need formula, okay? Not everybody can breastfeed. There are cases where it's actually physically not possible for either the mom to feed or the baby to feed. Um so we need formula, and I'm not saying we don't, but it's a healthcare product that should only be promoted by healthcare professionals. And we lost the culture. So our mothers are telling us as as new mums, you know what you actually need to be given the formula, and so we're fighting against our, our 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 maternal role models because that's what they were told, and we're also fighting against, unfortunately, some some healthcare professionals because that's what they were told. So we need to re educate everybody. But if we think about it, and Sabine Higgins said this in her um in her speech, it's on YouTube if you want to look it up. It's the launch of the Breastival conference that started last um week- weekend, and she just said, you know. A hundred years ago, nearly 100% of babies in Ireland were breastfed. And what happened is we let the formula companies in and we believed them. We believed the marketing. And look, advertising would be grand if it was just giving you straight up information, but it's not. Advertising is there to make you feel like you some, you need something that you didn't actually need. That's why they pump millions into it. And if they didn't, the formula would probably be a lot cheaper. But it's a $70 billion global industry. We are giving money to formula companies in Ireland, subsidising them. I do not understand that. If we gave that money that we were subsidising to these food companies, to the actual maternity services, we would solve the breastfeeding rate.
0: Even, even that is just so rage-making as well, uh, that we're giving them money. I mean, how complicit is our government in this? Like, I mean, without going into, into territory, that's going to get us into trouble. But, <laughs> you know, again, surely their responsibility, whatever about people wanting to make a fast book, you know, mm. commercial enterprises wanting to sell loads of formula, you can understand that thing. But the government surely should be on the side of women and on the side of the health and on the science.
1: They should Why be. Are, so I'm not I don't want to suggest that people are complicit, but I think people are uneducated and unaware. And I think, you know, this goes back to a lot of diversity. I wonder how many people on cabinet have breastfed. You know, I I, I would I would has I would say it's not the majority. So I actually think we need to educate our politicians because one way we can fix this is to legislate for the World Health Health Organization Code on Infant Feeding. And we should have no marketing of any baby food or milk products from zero to 36 months. That's what the WHO code um, says. They've been saying it for 40 years and we haven't done it. But if you look at any of the countries that have uh, implemented this code, They are on 90% plus breastfeeding rates. And obviously that's helping their babies because babies are less likely to get asthma, less likely to get uh, throat infections or gut infections. The mothers are less likely to get cancer. There's less um, rates of obesity, so many things that will benefit our society. So I think we have to educate our government on this. But I also something that um, the Ombudsman for Children said this year really resonated with me, he said a lot of the problems that he sees are because agencies don't want to uh, take on the monetary burden. So if we see this as just a Department of Health issue, where just the Department of Health has to fund the maternity and the breastfeeding services, uh, that's one thing. But actually, if we talk thought about this in the global sense, where actually if the uh, Enterprise Ireland wasn't funding the formula companies and that money was instead going to the maternity and the breastfeeding strategies, then it wouldn't matter. So we just, I think, have to start thinking about funding as just money in and money out and not on whose book that it lands in. And I think per- perhaps, you know, putting this issue in the Department of the Taoiseach and rather instead of just under one health department and under somebody's accountancy book, you know, that might actually help things as well.
0: Even before I bring in um, Emma, I want to ask you about a recent tweet you had about follow on milk, which oh, yeah. I thought was, which got <laughs> a big, um, went a little bit viral. It did. You were disappointed in Super Value who are promoting follow on milk as, when it's not necessary. This even, even when mm-hmm. I see the ads for follow on milk, I'm just like, what even is follow on milk? Like. It doesn't make any sense. It's just another thing to sell women that their babies don't actually need.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, just in case anybody who's listening doesn't know, Follow On Milk was only created by the formula companies because in Ireland, in Britain and a couple of other countries, they have made it illegal to uh, advertise um, baby milks from zero to six months. But after six months, we haven't put that legislation in. So they created uh, Follow On Milk for six months onwards. Um, so it's just you know, it's almost the same as Formula One that you might give a baby if they're under six months, but it has slightly more sugar, um, slightly more vanilla, which actually kind of is addictive <laughs> almost <laughs> for the babies, um, and and toddler milk and again Formula Three milk, which you absolutely do not be, need to give to your children because they should just have cow's milk at that point, um, they are solely created as a marketing ploy so that you will um, get brand recognition. So if I see a certain brand and, and they've done the research on this, the research shows you that when uh, a parent sees an ad like this, they actually don't register that it's for six months forward. They They just think, oh, that's formula for my baby, even if they're younger than six months. So the companies know this and this is why they spend a lot of money on it targeting first time moms because they want your brand loyalty. And it's a purely cynical operation. And this is why we should legislate for the WHO code to ban marketing up to 36 months because they're doing it in every which way now. So Supervalue had that promotion. But I've seen other supermarkets who are giving away a free sample of toddler milk. They're giving away maybe a free bottle or stuff like that. And it's literally just to get you to recognize that brand. You as a first time parent are really valuable to that company. And that's why they're investing in that advertising. And so it's really, really underhanded and it's really, really cynical. And I just want to say that, you know, if 100 percent of families decided to feed their babies with formula, this WHO code would be all the more important because you shouldn't be just aggressively advertised at i can make my food choices without a tv ad like the formula that i use for my baby because i yeah, he is on formula because i i couldn't continue it after 16 weeks with the tooth unfortunately um so i use i use a formula but it's not one that's actually been advertised on television and, you know, it, it's something that my my husband and I, we decided on because we looked at all the ingredients and that's how we should be making our decisions, not based on which company has the most money to aggressively market on social media, with influencers and everything. So it, I really feel like we would very much support breastfeeding a lot more if we simply had the legislation to do that.
0: Yeah, we. I think we should find out another time who invented follow on milk, Evie, oh, I know on who a it podcast. Is. Oh, you do?
1: Yeah, it's a man. Uh, of course it's a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I've been reading up a lot on this, Roisin. <laughs> so it was a man in France and... There was a baby who was quite poorly. I think his month, his mum had passed away or something. You know, at the time, those wet nurses and things like that, like people, you know, women actually made money from being able to breastfeed other other people's children. But um, so so Nestle made up this formula, and the baby, um, according to him, and according to his it thrived. Um, so he managed to get his message out there and we all know about nestle and we all know about their reputation in africa and i i don't think that i they can um they can uh, sue me for for libel because it's all it's all been documented you know and, and babies died because of the aggressive marketing tactics of formula companies out there where they had sales reps dress up as nurses and tell mothers formula will be better than you giving breast milk and doing that to somebody who does not have clean running water that they're able to boil, you know, babies actually died. Um, And I just think that's where we're coming from in terms of the advertising. Companies will go to whatever length it is to make the most profit. Um, And we just need to be really aware of that all the time. Um, But these big food industries are not there for your baby's health. They're there for their bottom line and their shareholders. So um, I, I really think that this is why I'm really passionate about just getting the code legislated for as soon as possible. And I would just like to educate our legislators who we vote for. And I will be asking them all about this whenever our next election comes up. And God love anyone who uh,
0: knocks on your door, even Jesus. <laughs> 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 They'll be there for ages. I'm delighted. Listen, Emma, I want to bring you in now. Um, thanks for for listening there. First of all, before we go on to the COVID restrictions and, and the women that you've been hearing from and advocating for, what do you think about what Even said there um, about breastfeeding?
2: Oh, I like Even and I could be best friends because the <laughs> only thing over the last 16 months that I've kind of become so much more aware of, aside from, you know, the lack of value that is placed on women in terms of these restrictions, also comes back to the unethical practices of um, formula companies. So I still, and I'd say that with inverted commas, still breastfeed my 15 month old um, happily, happily. Um, you know, it was gas at the beginning. People were kind of like, oh, you're breastfeeding. Oh, because, you know, nobody in my family breastfed. No one. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. We'll give it a lash. And in my head, again, back down to marketing practices as a first time mother, I was like, sure, we'll get to six months because that's when you stop, mm. isn't it? I mean, like, you know, they definitely have formula after six months in my head. Like I hadn't heard about the WHO code. I hadn't heard about the the recommendations to feed to two years and beyond. I heard nothing of this. Um, and it just kind of dawned on me like how unethical the entire thing is I mean even the price of formula when you think about it Mm -hmm. all formula companies have to do is to intercept you at a weak point and to get not to get you hooked that's not really the right terminology but once they break that breastfeeding relationship that you're now reliant on their product that's it like you're in you're you are in you are you you now, you can't come back. I'm not, I'm not giving people who are listening no hope in saying that you can't relactate in this um, when you, you know, when you're working with a good lactation consultant. Um, but in saying that, generally speaking, once you make the dive, um, you're very unlikely to come back and they've hooked you then and you're spending 12, 13, 14 euro a pop on a tin of dried cow's milk. Um, and to come back to the point as well, I think the figure was something it was over four million euro anyway that we know of that's been. Uh, directly given to these formula companies. But it's even more than that because I'm actually a, I'm a scientist and I'm a farmer as well. Um, and when you think about it, so that money from, I think it was Enterprise Ireland, it was said that it was from, given directly to the companies. What that doesn't take into account is the other incentive. Basically, the, the product is further subsidized. So raw milk coming off a farm, there's already massively you know, there's massive subsidies in that in terms of cap payments, in terms of basic farm payments, in terms of all these payments. So the formula companies are already receiving a hugely subsidized product for which farmers are working their backsides off and should be fairly paid, but they're not um, by the people who are buying it. And yeah, it just it's, it's just a massively unethical system. Um, and it, it really infuriates me. Um, the, the, the figure that only 6% or less of babies are breastfed at six months is shocking. And what's even worse is, they don't even have a figure for what, you know, how many are breastfed beyond that because yeah. it's not actually recorded as <laughs> far as I know by, by GPs and PHNs. So my baby is just well off the radar. Like, we're already weird enough. Like, you know, like yeah, that when we got past <laughs> six months, people were like, yeah, I know. People are like, oh, OK, that's nice. And then we kind of kept going and it came up a couple of months ago. Now, obviously, as your your baby grows, like the feeding frequencies go way down. Um, So she only really feeds like maybe in the morning and at nighttime before bed. But like my mother-in-law, she'll kill me now if I say this. She's over a couple of nights ago and uh, I was putting Liv down to bed and she's like, so are you still breastfeeding? And I was like, yeah. And she's kind of like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like it never really dawns on people that babies still need and benefit from breast milk so there's just a really a lot of re-education and it started mm. like the whole formula breast milk conversation and maternity are so really heavily interlinked because it was my experience when I was in hospital um, a first-time mother I hadn't had a great birth experience it was very very stressful coming up to it because I knew I was going to be separated from my partner and uh, you know the actual birth itself didn't go fabulously and I was totally alone very weak on a ward but one thing that worked for us was breastfeeding so she latched like a dream and for that I am eternally grateful because I'm not going to say actually that it's rare because I feel like I geared myself up I was like my nipples are going to be shredded I'm not going to be able to you know it's going to be horrific breastfeeding is supposed to be horrific and it just wasn't and I was like is it actually working properly because I'm not feeling any pain (laughs) like that's how good it went for us we were really lucky
0: I totally relate to what you're saying there. And I don't want to again, anyone listening who's have trouble because I know and I have sisters who've had really bad trouble. So I totally get that it's not something that everyone comes to. But I don't know if there's enough said about when it does work, how amazing it is. And what a joyful and yeah. beautiful experience. I mean, I used to I looked forward to it. I loved it. I felt really like I was doing what my body was supposed to be doing. And was something and I wouldn't be the most sort of earth mothery type person, but for some reason it really connected to that part of me that my body was showing up in the way that, you know, was great for my my little babies and I was able to do something right. I know it doesn't work for everyone, but not enough said about that joy, breastfeeding joy.
2: It was fabulous. Yeah, I, I just felt like I was, aside from like, you know, stepping into what my body was supposed to do and empowering myself because frankly, nobody else was empowering me to do it. And at the same time, as I began to realise the unethical practices of these formula companies, I was literally sticking it to the man. I was like, no, I am not buying into your marketing. I'm not buying into this and all. The negative things, as as valuable as formula is, it's absolutely essential and it's important as well that people have the choice to do whichever they want to do. I would never, ever take that away from people. Um, But at the same time, I was so happy that I was able to do it myself and go alone and
0: yeah, Eve, you were going to get in there just a little bit before we go into the COVID restrictions with Emma. But were, did you have something to say? In yeah, response? well,
2: first of all, yeah, let's let's be best friends,
1: Emma, because we've got lots to talk about. Breast um, friends. <laughs> Breast <laughs> <best> friends. <laughs> um, but I just want to re- echo that like breastfeeding is beautiful when you get it. But just for any listeners as well, if they're like, oh, it's easy for you. And when it worked out, it did not work out for me with either boy. And as a first time mom, I was literally in tears because my baby, my first boy, couldn't latch, he had tongue tie. It annoyed me so much because no one told me or no one checked for four days. I got home and I was engorged and ready to stop everything and crying. So And it was so, so painful. And in the hospital, they kind of said, we're going to have to give him formula because his blood sugars are low. And he was brought down to ICU and I was on my own and I was just... Beside myself, my new baby that and I was wasn't able to feed him. Something wrong with me, all of this. So like we got past it, and actually we went to exclusively breastfeeding after, you know, a couple of weeks, um, and that was all fine. But it was just so stressful at the beginning. But after that, we got it nailed, and that's your special time with your baby, and it's just beautiful. But Emma, I was like you, and I succumbed because I thought, well, I only breastfeed up until six months, and I only. Breastfed up until six months. You know, it was grand. I had to go away for a work thing anyways. I probably would have stopped, but I wish I had known that I didn't need to. And with my second boy, I really wish that they had kept the lactation consultant on because I was in such pain at 16 weeks. And I, to be honest, I could have afforded and got another lactation consultant, but I was so sleep deprived and weak and everything, From I was just like, I don't want to have to explain myself to another person and explain why I think I'm going to quit now because of the pain. So I'm just going to stop. And I actually regret that now. Um, so, yes, there's lovely, beautiful joy with it. But it's when the times are hard that you just need someone there to go. I know it's hard and I understand your pain. And here's a few tips or let me go and I'll make dinner for you. And you just sit there for a while and see if this will work um, that's all you need, just a little bit more support. Yeah,
0: well, thanks a million for that. So, Emma, back to you in terms of um, in her shoes, the COVID pregnancy page in her shoes and your experience of pregnancy. So why did you set it up? Because you were, you were at the kind of cold face, at that pinch point. You found yourself in this situation and you obviously realized that there were so many other women in the same situation and they needed Mm -hmm. a voice. Really, Yeah.
2: So I had my first daughter um, in April 2020. So I remember the night that the first raft of restrictions came in and whatever night in March and I was 34 weeks pregnant and I was sitting on the couch and I I think like everybody else, we were kind of like, wow, this is happening. Like, wow. You know, everybody, you know, run down, uh, whatever people did, you know, clearing out supermarkets and all the rest of it. It was mad. Um, But it never really dawned on me that, you know, this would impact me and my partner at what is such a critical time, um, in any new family. Um, so we kind of just proceeded as we were, but I, you know, for my next antenatal appointment, I was told that he wasn't allowed to come and I was like, okay, you know, fair enough. It's a pandemic. Um, but nothing had ever really been explained to me as to what would happen when it came to the birth. So as I so found out, um, he essentially wasn't allowed in. So he'd be allowed in for active labor. um, And then I'd, I'd be on my own and I might be on my own. Well, I would be on my own before that. um, And then I'd definitely be on my own after that. There were no guidelines, no rules, no regulations. It was take what you get. And if he's there, you're lucky. Um, So we went in. I was very fortunate now. um, We live about an hour from the hospital. And I was very, very determined, particularly as a first time mother, not to fall, not into a trap, but I didn't want to, you know, bring myself into a hospital and potentially be relegated from my partner for however many hours on an antenatal ward. Um, I know as well, hospitals are quite understaffed, so it's not always possible for them to check you to confirm you're in active labor. And I just it wasn't for me. So I was like, I'm staying at home. So I woke up on the morning she was born and like I knew I was in labor and sure went in and told himself he's still in bed. And he's kind of like, huh, you know, he was whatever, you know, wake me up when it's really bad. And I was like, OK, yeah, it's pretty bad. But anyway, Um, eventually he got up and he started getting a bit antsy. So I agreed to go in cause we are an hour from the hospital. Um, and as it so transpired, I was fairly advanced. So I was fairly chuffed at myself. I was managing well at home, got in and, um, he was allowed to stay in with me. Um, now it did take a bit of a dark turn in the sense that, and this is kind of where my, yeah, estimation of the maternity services kind of went downhill slightly. Um, so I went in and I had to go in by myself, which was fine. Again, I was semi-expecting that. And I went up to be assessed. And while I was there, um, or the the midwife before I was assessed said, oh, you can, your partner can be here, you know, as a chaperone kind of thing. And I suppose it's to cover their own backsides as well, which is fair. You know, and I was delighted. I didn't actually think that would happen. Um, and while I was waiting for him, she ran through all my birth preferences and I said, look, minimum intervention. Just I need to blow this popsicle stand as quick as I can. I'm young, fit and healthy. This baby's coming out and I'm going home <laughs> was my feeling on the entire thing. And uh, anyway, she was like, so basically I said, no, no intervention. I don't need it unless it's an emergency please just leave me and my body be. And I'm saying that as not an earth mother. I'm a very practical salt of the earth type woman. I'm a scientist, I'm a farmer. I was just off the back of a lambing season. Like I know what birth looks like and I know how it changes. So, you know, I didn't need anybody to tell me that I I didn't need a rock solid birth plan. So anyway, that was all fine and lovely and, and all the rest of it. And my partner came in about two minutes after we finished that conversation and I hopped up to be assessed and she said, oh, I can't tell how far along you are or how far dilated you are because your waters are bulging. And in my head, my practical rational scientist head, I came back because I told active labour in Hollis Street, which is where I was, was one centimetre. So in my tiny brain, I was like, well, how can anything bulge if it's closed? So, you know, am I not already in active labour? And this is where it really turned. She said, look, um, I'm going to have to break your waters. And I I knew that constituted an induction of labour. You know, the cascade of interventions for first time mothers is quite high. And I said, okay, well, what happens if you don't do that? And she's like, if he doesn't, if. Um, if I don't do that, he's leaving. So it was really quite, you know, it was, it felt very threatening at the time. So I consented anyway, there was a a massive um, cascade of interventions. Then, fortunately, my baby was born very quickly, but I suffered a bleed shortly thereafter, a postpartum hemorrhage. And my partner, thankfully, I I say thankfully, it happened while he was in the room because he was allowed to stay and hold the baby. And after they brought me under control, um, we got 20 minutes together um, and baby was handed to me. I was wheeled down to a ward by myself and good luck to you. That was it. I was so weak. I was shaking. It was, And it was quite traumatic, the entire thing that happened. Nothing was explained to me as it was done. There were hands everywhere. Nobody asked my consent for anything. Breaking my waters wasn't even a version of informed consent that I could, it was, it was really quite horrific. And I, I never, when I entered, when I say I'm a salt of the earth kind of rational person, I entered the maternity services with little expectations as to how it would go beyond that I'd be treated with respect and dignity. And I wasn't even afforded that. And it just, that was what really got to me. You know, it can go any way you want. And as they say, people will remember not what you do for them, but how you make them feel. And I will never forget how I was made feel on the day of my daughter's birth. Um, So glossing over that (laughs) because I don't want to dwell on it too much.
0: Yeah. So uh, Emma, I mean, I think that was obviously a really harrowing experience and... You know, in a way, you had the wherewithal to some degree, having your sciencey kind of farming background. You had a different insight into it, which probably helped you a bit, even though emotionally I can see how that was a devastating experience to be left in that situation, especially after hemorrhaging and everything. So where did you get from that to kind of looking around and thinking, hang on a second, women are being really left behind here and are not being advocated for. I mean, for me, it's been looking at those podiums night after night on the news. And I know it's a very symbolic thing. And I know that it's not like men don't care about women because obviously they do. They have partners and sisters. They can understand women's needs to some degree. But symbolically, just seeing that the people making decisions in this pandemic are men predominantly. And they're standing up there every night telling us it just has has really given me sort of such a lack of faith or or feeling a bit almost disconnected with with the authorities and the people making decisions. So how did it work for you in terms of that feeling of just that women were being left behind and it was such an important time of their lives? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, so I suppose it was a bit of transition. So I had my baby in April and then kind of towards the summer last year, I don't know if people recall, there was kind of a motion put forward to the doll um, with regards to a temporary extension of maternity leave in response to the COVID pandemic. And this was... Purely because childcare was not a thing. um, And you have to, you know, it really like I, I, people might forget now. It seems so long ago, but it also seems like yesterday, you know, childcare closed overnight. And this is particularly detrimental as well. And you think healthcare workers who are at the, the cold face of this pandemic, 80% of them are women. And overnight their childcare provision disappeared. Um, I myself, you know, i have a very flexible employer, but, you know. There's so little you can do with an infant at home when you have to go back to work, um, particularly when state maternity leave isn't particularly well paid. You know, you kind of have to go back to work. Um, so I started kind of dipping my toes into that or during the summer. And, you know, I really got into it and I actually thought there was a fairly decent chance that we might be listened to because it seemed completely, you know, Logical, and this makes sense, and what exactly are you expecting women to do because the these caregiving roles and women are on maternity leave? This is who they fall to. So what do you expect women to do? Like you're gonna turn around and say no, and then you know what's the provision? Um so anyway, it went to the doll and it was kicked out on its backside. not by much now, it was actually only a narrow loss, but um anyway that that happened around I think it was around July, August, September time, so after that kind of happened, I had a bit of a fire in my belly, and I was like, who is making these decisions, and why? Like it just it really incensed me. Um, so I kind of came back then. I, I in my head as well, naively while I was busy doing this maternity leave thing. Um, I thought that you know these maternity restrictions would have eased. You know, we're looking back to last summer when things were starting to open again, cases were very low. So I had assumed that in line with good ethical healthcare practice, that people might be afforded the support that you know they need. That the World Health Organization says that they need. That every HSE document prior to the pandemic says you need. And it wasn't. <laughs> and it just kind of struck me like it was, it was bad for me, but I got through because, you know, beginning of the pandemic, nobody knew where anything was. It was one thing. It wasn't right, but it was what it was. But for people six months, seven months on, it, it just didn't sit right with me. So I contacted Erin Darcy, who obviously ran the In Her Shoes um, campaign with the, the Repeal the Eighth Movement. And I just said, look, Erin, you had such a powerful campaign." any chance you might do this for maternity? And she said, look, it's a fantastic idea. I just don't have time to do it. So I was like, oh, raging. Cause I was really open. Like I could just push it onto her nicely. She'd done such a fantastic job <laughs> and I'd a bit on my plate myself, but anyway, she didn't. And coincidentally at the same time um Ciara who is a Limerick woman or Claire woman I always say Limerick and she kills me um <laughs> she had also been in touch with Erin coincidentally so Erin linked the two of us um Keira had given birth in April or in March via a c-section totally alone um down in Limerick so she we got in touch together and basically we said look there are stories here that have to be told we cannot sweep what's happening under the rug and we can't let it happen again to Irish women that we just turn a blind eye so we set up the page and we fully expected it to fail um now to be fair we were told we were lunatics and we were told I was told that I was trying to kill babies <laughs> by advocating to have their dad there it was it was quite a tough time like where we are now with this campaign is really been a tidal shift in what it was last year. Last year, there was a lot of hate uh, towards us, um, and that was one of the powerful things as well. All the stories on our page are totally anonymous, and um, so nobody has to reveal their identity because there's a lot of shame, I think, linked. To basically women giving out in this country, if you give out your weak and you're useless and you're this and you're that, and and you're not
0: um you're
2: not going along with the status quo
0: as well, Emma. You're you're supposed to just yeah, shut yeah. up and get on with it, and you know sure just uh, grin and bear it is a is kind of the attitude towards a lot of um health issues that women go through, isn't it? So so tell us then Absolutely. about the stories that are coming through, and it's interesting you say that tidal shift. I'm fascinated by that about the hate, you know, that you got for just mm. expressing the needs that. Are very basic that women need when they're, you know, when they're in maternity services and when they're having babies, and just that companionship, that company, that support, and all of that. It's so important, and the fact that they weren't finding safe ways to do that—that that that, that was not a priority. What kind of stories are, have mm-hmm. you heard? I know you've had lots,
2: so maybe just give us some examples. Oh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and they've been of the worst kind. Like I, they'll stay with me forever, um, and the fact that it just makes me so mad that the stories are still pouring in now and nobody's doing anything about it, I feel. So, I mean, stories of loss. I've heard stories of, you know, people being told that in late gestation that their baby has died and they've had to go outside to the car park and tell the partner that themselves. Um, I've had stories of horrific birth experiences, miscarriages, multiple losses. I, yeah. I
0: mean, I know, Emma, you could go on for ages and ages of those stories. Yeah. In, uh, in the introduction to this podcast, I read out one particular horrific situation where the woman seemed to have gone through everything from preeclampsia to pregnancy loss to, you know, it's just, it's a horrible. What's your own take on um, why this is happening and why still the restrictions are there when we have opened up so much more than at any other stage in the pandemic? I mean, it's hard not to ascribe really sort of dark motivations to this or something. I don't know. It's just, It's very... It's awful. What, what are, what's your own understanding or take on it?
2: Um, my understanding is it really comes down to control. Um, before, you might like it. None of the excuses or rationales that have been given for these restrictions hold water. So initially we were told it was to protect staff. Staff are fully vaccinated, pretty much 100 percent vaccinated across the board. So that that lost water, you know, January, February time. We were then told it was to protect women and infants. And that doesn't hold water either because they're not keeping partners out of hospitals they're letting them in at an arbitrary time point when they think that your cervix is dilated enough or you've been subject to enough emotional torture, to put it that way, um, that they're, you're now um, worthy of having someone to support you. So they're letting them in. Anyway, and they're letting them in. So as far as I understand a COVID transmission times are something like 15 minutes. If you're beside somebody who's COVID positive for more than 15 minutes, you're a close contact. Um, so they're letting them in for beyond that time. And, at, you know, arbitrary time points. So They're not protecting you from COVID. Um, they refuse to offer um, partners COVID tests. So again, that really comes back to the protection of women and infants. So they're letting partners in anyway. They don't know their COVID status. And then they're also letting you go home with that same partner. So they really could care less about protecting you or anybody else from COVID. Um, And I'll be damned if somebody tells me they don't have the tools nearly, what are are we now, 17, 18 months into a pandemic to provide one more COVID test. I mean, when a woman presents at their booking appointment, you kind of have an arbitrary timeframe that approximately six months later, she might present to give birth. So you you know that maybe in six months time, you might need an additional COVID test. Um, last week or the week before, the HSE said that vaccinated partners won't be allowed in. Again, no answer as to why. Um, and I have heard anecdotally, well, not really anecdotally, from trusted sources that have met with hospital management um, that really it comes down to an operational thing. They just don't want partners there. And I fully believe that. There's no other reason. So how do you
0: feel when you hear about, you know, dining indoors and pubs being open and vaccinate, people being who are vaccinated allowed to go and have pints with their mates and... How, how do you feel about that? I mean, it just seems so deeply unfair and wrong. Uh, the Waterford Whispers thing that I also introduced in the introduction of this podcast where, you know, a woman was planning to give birth in a pub so that her partner could be present. Yeah. I mean, it's satire, yeah. but it's actual truth as well. You know, it is.
2: Yeah. No, look if it's safe to reopen and if it makes sense and if all the provisions have been put into place, I welcome the reopening of society. I have no issue with it. And to be honest, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, you can't compare one to the other. You can't compare maternity services to 40,000 people in Croke Park. Well, actually, you can, to be honest. Now, let's just bring it back because That 40,000 crowd in Croke Park has significant societal impacts. If it didn't, it would would have been allowed to go ahead months ago. You know, that has ripple effects in terms of COVID transmission. So don't tell me that they're not related is the first thing because I have to be extra careful now because I know that those events are going ahead. The second thing is we're not asking for troops of visitors with balloons going in and out of hospital. We're asking for one person, a close contact, under safe circumstances, ideally with the COVID test, and if they're vaccinated, which most partners are now at this stage, and a significant amount of pregnant people are too, all the better um, into a hospital to support someone in line with best practice that's not happening so it absolutely incenses me that down the road from a maternity unit you can go sit in the pub you can go shopping in pennies for Nel bikini you can go and see a ga match you can do whatever you feel like essentially and yet you have to leave people to go through some of the most harrowing experiences that you can ever imagine like when I had my daughter I remember naively um I was like oh god it's such a it's a a much better society that I'm bringing her into than I was born into. You know, we've repealed the eighth marriage equality, um, equality for women in the workplace has gone up. I was like, Jesus, yeah, this is great, and it just dawned on me like we're not that far, like we're one crisis away from having, um, no one with us, from being totally isolated, and uh, you know, it's just. it it boils my blood. I could go on for hours.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. Even can I bring you in here? Because um, as I mean, I know you have your, your, well, you have your two hats on, you have your breastfeeding hat on and your woman who gave birth in the pandemic hat on too. What do you think of what Emma has said and where we are now with restrictions still in place and that idea that it's about controlling women? What do you think?
1: Well, I'm just so sad, and I'm so heartbroken, and Emma, I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. Like, it just make I actually just want to cry, and also get really angry at the same time. Um, and to be honest, I really haven't. I'm I'm going to put my hand up here, and I'm going to say I haven't really tuned into these stories because I'm actually not able for them. I'm still very emotional from my own isolating, you know, birth process, Um and I just can't. I really just, I really can't understand why women in Ireland are still, you know, not prioritised. And that's just what it feels like. It's just that we're not a priority. And maybe we don't make enough noise. Uh, You know, maybe we need to be more structured in how we're talking about it or how we're acting on it. I I don't know. Um, Two things I want to say, if you don't mind, Roisin. I, I think This really speaks to the fact that the next national maternity hospital has to be owned and run by the state. Because if at the moment all the guidelines and all the codes and policies are there about what should happen in a maternity hospital, and yet the maternity hospitals are in the majority voluntarily run, and so they can kind of do what they want. And that's not good enough in this day and age. It really isn't, you know. The state is a century old, and yet we've still managed to farm out most of our um activities to institutions and, and charitable charitable organizations. You know, education's another massive one, but health is is coming to the fore in this. You know, it, it's just not right. So the National Maternity Hospital, when it gets built, has to be state run on state land. Um, And and I I think that that, you know, I think that that's really clear from from what's happening at the moment. And thank you, Emma, for highlighting all of it as well. The second thing I do want to say, Roisin, as well, is that there are a lot of people who are working really hard in the maternity wards who also would like your partners to be in with you. And I had very lovely experiences with my way drives, and I know I'm so lucky for that. And, you know, technically, Carlos could have been told to go home when I came in for my second because technically I was, you know, maybe not quite at the centimeter mark, but they let him in because they knew I was going to go in the next 20 minutes anyways, and I did. Um, But, you know, there are really good midwives in there. And I know that they want to advocate for the mums, but they're also not being listened to, as as Emma's been saying. Um, and I think there's going to be a massive upsurge in home births because I certainly know that if if we have a number three, I'll be doing it at home because I don't want to have to deal with the stresses that something like this may happen. You know, and I'd like to do that in the comfort of my own home, um, where I will get to have the people and the person that I need to advocate for me there.
0: Yeah, well, even on that, and thanks for bringing that up. And I I mean, I know we get get, um, upset and angry about these issues because they are so upsetting, but it is important to mention the amazing people in the maternity services who we've all experienced anyone who's been in there lots of great people but lo- unfortunately a lot of them are not in the positions of authority to make the decisions around these things um, and I think that's a very good point about home births and to be honest I would say having sisters and sister-in-laws who've had um, several home births uh, very beautifully and successfully and really enjoyably maybe that is one of those COVID silver linings that people will see that it is something I mean I know it's not for everyone again it's a, sort of similar to the breastfeeding thing but it is a beautiful thing thing if you are supported in the right way and for many many women it can be a great experience so hopefully that might be something that might come out of this um can I just go to you both now and and come to you Emma first just about what can we do next is there anything anyone can listening can do that we can lobby for that we can talk about that we how can we how can we sort of convince the the powers that be that these issues are really important and, and women need to be prioritized
2: so I suppose the most important thing and the best bit of advice that I could ever give is just raise your voice and don't stop shouting. Um, It's the most powerful tool you'll have. And it's, it's the one that they might try to take away from you the most. You have a voice and you can use it. Um, Lobby your TD, lobby your local politicians. That's what they're there for. They're there to represent you. So you get in touch with them and you tell them what you need. Um, I suppose as well as a more far reaching thing. I think this has really shown in the entire pandemic from maternity care to children's shoes to children's health care to childcare has really shown why we need um, more women in politics because we're not represented I mean these men there might have our best interests at heart or so they think but they're not listening to what we need and we need someone in there that does it for us and I'm anybody listening I'm just imploring you stand up and put yourself out there and just make as much noise as you can you're worth it you're powerful and you carry more power than you could ever know um, and if you want change make it do it be it Um, and just don't stop. I know know that sounds very lofty and very up in the air, but that's what we need to do. I mean, we can't have ourselves in another position when the next crisis hits or the next pandemic hits and we're looking back thinking, what should we have done different from this one? And this is what we should have done differently. We need that better representation and we need it there now. We needed it years ago, but we need it there right now. So people need to do it, please.
0: (laughs) And Emma, just on a practical sense, is there any sign that these restrictions are going to be lifted anytime soon or does it look like, no, that's it for the foreseeable? Uh,
2: Well... They're talking themselves around in circles. So the HSE have said a, a pile of times now that basically they've put out these national guidelines that should be implemented by all hospitals. Um, uh, only a minority are not implementing um, implementing them allegedly, Um, and they should be implementing them all by the end of the week. But what people fail to understand is that those guidelines are still extremely restrictive. So, for example, one of the guidelines that should be complied with is that a partner should be allowed access into A&E or into the Early Pregnancy Assessment Unit. And you typically only find yourself in A&E if there's a problem and same with the Early Pregnancy Assessment Unit, which is really, you know, for early loss and that kind of thing mostly. Um, And the problem is partners are allowed in. But what happens is a person arrives to hospital, goes in and their partner isn't permitted in until an emergency has been confirmed. So in the case of the EPAU, the Early Pregnancy Assessment Unit, you think you're having a loss, the signs are very much there. You'll go in by yourself, have the scan, be told that you've suffered a loss and then your partner's allowed in. So yeah, that, that really gets to me because it's really a, a kind of sidestepping of the whole issue and it's making people look like they're very benevolent and very much uh women and people centered and giving the people what they need and want and support but they're not um so I would urge everybody as well to please read into that and just realize that when they say the restrictions are lifted they're not <laughs> so but we'll keep going we're not going to stop even just from you then and um, what you think
0: People can do and also in this situation in this uh, in terms of the restrictions but also for breastfeeding breastfeeding week is until august 7th and there's there's a lot of talk about it you mentioned breastival and sabine higgins as well getting very who always is so supportive of it um what about people listening who feel like they'd like to help or get involved or do something
1: so i'm with emma on this and i'm having a lot of conversations about this recently but i do think grassroots movements and activism is is the way forward. But activism can take a lot of different forms, you know, because I I think, you know, sometimes we can say, well, I'm not that loud person or I don't like marches or I wouldn't wear the merchandise. But actually, activism takes lots of different forms. And and when you do it in a grassroots way, it's actually just about having conversations. If that's at your dinner table, at a coffee morning or on a walk or, you know, whatever it is. But I, I think definitely engaging with our legislators, because that's what politicians are. They're actually there to legislate. And we need to tell them exactly what we want to legislate. Um, And I think for me now, because I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, we need to lobby, but how is the best way to do that? And, And I'm not on commission or anything like that. But for me, I joined the National Women's Council just as a member Um, around the repeal the eighth, because I just thought, you know what, they were the strong woman's voice that got to the tables with the decision makers. And they're still at those tables. They're at the tables in the HSE. They're at the tables in the Department of Health with the politicians. And, you know, they're very easy to engage with and, and they take on a lot of ideas. So that's just what I would say, you know, don't be afraid to have the conversations and remember that we get things done by grassroots. And there's a book and I can't remember the name of it now, but I I read it. It it was on the first 20 years of the state and how women just got easily, not easily, gently nudged out little by little. And there were so many women at the time who were speaking out, you know, were part of coming them on. And and we're really trying to make noise to make sure that they didn't get erased. So I just think we need to take up their flag and get back in there and just make sure we get heard. You know, you don't have to run for office to be a, a voice.
0: Well, that's true. But now that you are breast friends, maybe you could both set up a political party or something. I would be totally <laughs> there for you. I'd be... Bolting the crap out of you two, I'll tell you something. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it's such an important point, even about activism coming in many many forms. It's not necessarily about shouting, it's not even necessarily about going on marches, but there's many, many ways to support and raise awareness of these really important issues. We just can't let the we can't let things roll backwards. And that's mm-hmm. what kind of is so without being too bleak about it, it's sort of almost, it's terrifying listening to both of you on those levels just to see how things can so easily be rowed back. Um, If you think of the culture in the 70s with breastfeeding, how that was very quickly Mm -hmm. uh, done and how our mums now have a view of breastfeeding that's not correct. And then to do with this as well um, because it's kind of handier for the authorities and hospitals to not have those advocates and and partners around how easily they've been um, pushed out the door and there doesn't look like any sign of them coming back. So It's just about being vigilant too, isn't it? Just realizing that the rights we think we have are very fragile and we, we keep, need to keep raising our voices and I, I just want to say thank you so much to both of you for everything that you're doing and uh, maybe in a few months you could both come back on and things will be a bit better let's, let's try and be glass <laughs> half full about it but uh, for now thanks very much Emma and Eveen
1: Thanks so much Roisin Thanks very much
0: That's all we have time for the podcast is produced by me Roisin Ingle by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound you can contact us on social on Instagram Facebook or Twitter using at IT podcast. We're on email to podcast at irishtimes.com and we love hearing from you. Until next time, mind yourselves and thanks very much for listening.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.